Welcome to the ATX Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Riley. The ATX Podcast is an interview show with noteworthy Austinites about their lives, their work, and their city. In this interview, I interview Margaret Koch, director of the Bullock Texas State History Museum. During our conversation, Margaret talks about the history, creation, and legacy of Texas. One correction, it is noted in the interview that Texas statehood occurred in 1848. It occurred in 1845. All right, Margaret. Well, first of all, thanks for uh, for taking some time and, and uh, meeting up with uh, with me here. It's good to have you on, and uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. I wanted to start uh, by talking a little bit about your um, your background and maybe first just this facility that we're in right now, the the Texas State History Museum. And I was wondering for people who have never been here or have never investigated this this facility, um, how in the hell did this come to actually exist in its current <laughs> form? What is that story? So the Bullock Texas State History Museum is one of the youngest state history museums in the country. Mm. It opened in 2001. It was the vision of then Lieutenant Governor Bob Bullock. Mm-hmm. Um, and really the catalyst for its creation was the rediscovery of the shipwreck LaBelle mm-hmm. um, in Matagorda Bay in the 1990s by the Texas Historical Commission. Mm-hmm. And once he got the call that we have found this 300-year-old French shipwreck that mm-hmm. we've been looking for for so long. He's like, okay, this is the catalyst for this museum that I want to create. And so he was the driving force behind it. Um, He was present at the groundbreaking, but unfortunately passed away before we actually opened to the public. Mm -hmm. Um, We opened on San Jacinto Day in 2001, which is... Y'all need to look that up because that is a major state holiday. And if you're in Texas, you need to know what it's about. Um, But... Since that time, we've welcomed over 9.3 million visitors through the doors. About half of our exhibition visitors are school children. Texas history is studied in fourth and seventh grade. So we provide that tangible evidence of our amazing history through the exhibitions and the wonderful programming that our education team does. Um, right now we're a little surrounded by construction, but we are open almost every single day of the year. And, um, you need to come down and see it because it's a beautiful facility and there is always something new happening. Hmm. And for those children or for first time visitors who really get a chance to check this, this facility out and, and learn, what do you think or what do you hear that really strikes those visitors as to information or history that they were not familiar with about this state? I think there's two sides of the spectrum. One is that it affirms what um, kids are learning in school, right? So they're learning about um aspects of Native American history. They're, they're finding out in the galleries that the societies that were the first peoples here more complex maybe than they were thinking about before, that they had families, that they were trying to survive, that they populated the country from all over the place and there were thousands of them here, right? They're, they're finding out about how the Spanish, um, 
didn't really have Texas on their sites because it was a fairly inhospitable land for them at the time until the suspicious and enemy French came in looking for a foothold. And then we became more attractive. They see all of the, the places that people have come from. We've always been this area of people wanting a new start, um, who, who have vision or hope to gain vision here and created what we have today. So in some ways we affirm that in other ways we give surprises. Um, one of the most wonderful things that I saw happen in our galleries, which just for a museum person just gives you goosebumps, right? As I was hanging out and watching people interact with exhibits. And there was um, a father whose first language was Spanish. And he was at the start of our second floor where there's a very specific phrase that says, in 1821, Texas was part of Mexico. And it's big on the wall. And there was a map showing that Texas was part of Mexico. And he had his daughter who was about 10 or 11 years old with him. And he was animately talking with her mm. About this map. And she was interested. And then she got a little distracted and went away. And he sat there in front of the map. And I, I couldn't resist. So I went over to him. And I said, it was so inspiring. You showing your daughter what, what the map was about. He said, I have been trying to teach her this and tell her this for a long time. And right here, I had something I could do that with. Mm. And so we were able to you know, fulfill something that he wished for, but maybe wasn't sure he was going to get here. But then, you know, they become lifelong learners. And again, a tangible evidence of, of who we are and where we came from. Hmm. I think a lot of people don't know. Um, right now we have a, a section up on women's suffrage. I find it surprising that Texas was the second to ratify the 19th Amendment. Um, my home state of Wisconsin was the first, so I just have to give that shout out there. But Texas was not far behind. It was ours, really. Hmm. And, um, and then looking at the rights that women have acquired and and how few decades in the past it was that they required acquired those rights is kind of eye-opening for mm. younger generations that didn't grow up with that i think they discover that um you know it was the 1936 exposition that um really put it in the texas um, marketing mindset of shifting from a southern perspective or persona to a Western one. That's where you really see the cowboy come out more. Um, so hopefully on every floor, you're going to find a new surprise about Texas history. I joke with our team that I want us to be your Texas 101 place. Gotcha. So if you're, you know, if you were in school, but this is much more fun. If you were in school <laughs> and you were taking that introductory course to Texas history, especially with all the new Austinites coming in, you know, and setting down roots, we want to be the place where you discover why we are, how we are. Yeah. And I think you're right that there, there is some vague recollection, recollection of, with, of Americans that Texas has been a part of a variety of different countries in its past. Do we know what the first uh, sort of recorded um, history is of this place? And if so, when, when in history is that? And, and what was, what was Texas a part of the earliest that we're, we're aware? So the earliest artifact that you'll find in the museum is a, a projectile point mm. that was found at the Galt site, which is just about 40 miles north of us. And 
it, when we were planning our first floor where this is on display, at the time research was, was suggesting that it was about 10,000 years old. Mm. By the time we finished the exhibition and we put the point on display, we had to update the text because um, dating came back suggesting it was more than 16,000 years old. So first settlements that we know of that we have evidence of date back that far. In terms of written history, there's some really fascinating research being done on the petroglyphs in West Texas. Um, there is evidence um Scientists believe that is showing that that is not just illustrations, but actually written text. Um, and so I'm hoping that in the coming years, we find out more about that. But in all of those sites, you have evidence of community ritual um, connections from hundreds of miles away mm. in terms of trade routes. So really complex societies, not primitive, mm. but people are people and they form communities together. And we're beginning, I think, to realize and tease out what we didn't know mm. in that way. Great thing about being here at the Bullock and one of our main goals is it's in our mission were to tell the ever-changing story of Texas. And it's ever-changing because there's new research happening all the time. And we try to bring that research into the museum. Right. And in terms of Texas being a part of its first formal nation, do we know what country that was and what kind of what the story is in terms of how Texas being a part of that country came into being? In terms of European nation, it would be Spain. Mm. At least Spain laid claim um, and made it known. And one of the reasons France became interested in it was they were seriously interested in the silver mines that Spain was taking great advantage of at the time. Um, but there are numerous flags that have flown over Texas. We often think of the six flags, right? Yep. And they hang at the state capitol. Um, but there, there are, there's the Comanche Nation flag that, that hung over. I mean, just to put it in perspective, when Spain started moving north into what we now call Texas, 3,000 Spanish citizens, um, 30,000 Comanche hmm. plus, and that's only one indigenous group. There were plenty others. Hmm. Um, so, you know, and given the expanse of Texas, that's pretty phenomenal. Hmm. Um, and by that point in time too, you have Spaniards that are, are consider themselves pure blood, but you also have those, they've been intermarrying um, with indigenous people, with people of African descent, with, um, you know, all different kinds of nationalities. And so you have a very cross-cultural group of people, mm. even at that point in time. In that time frame of the Spanish, and, and I may be wrong about this, it, it, am I right that they were the first Western power to lay claim to this area that is currently called Texas? And if so, what when is what does that time frame look like, and then when when do the French also get involved? Well, you're, for for Spain, you're looking at the 1500s yeah. and Cortez, you know, um, being one of the explorers that that came, um, and also first 
documented African that we know or more that we know of at that time is um, referred to frequently as of uh, um, Stephen or Stefan hmm. who came with him. Actually, if my memory serves correctly, outlived Cortez and traveled even deeper into Texas. Um, but um, I was just reading an article about um, there's some evidence to, to suggest that people from further north in Europe and, um, you know, vernacular Vikings were, were going not just on the East Coast, but maybe exploring more inward as well. Hmm. I think there's a lot of history that has yet to be written mm. for us, and um, I can't wait to see what what is what is uncovered next. Yeah. Really, I think you were mentioning the the story you you were mentioning about the the father and daughter that it was in the 1820s. The map you were mentioning when yeah 1821 1821, and so the the talk to talk me through the from that time period to the point of the separation of Texas from Mexico and what led to that actually resulting in history? There are like any historical story. It's, it's complex. There's (laughs) a lot of gray area to it. Right. And, and like so many stories in our past, um, there wasn't a unanimous feeling over the whole thing. So, um, you've got Mexico for, um, and Spain for a long time really did not want immigrants within their territory, but Texas was so vast and it, and, um, American Indian tribal groups and nations had control over it. Um, and so they, they were going to protect their lands against any incursion, right? So the French show up in the 1680s, disastrous um, journey for La Salle, the explorer La Salle, and everybody practically that he brought with him. Um, but that, that triggers the Spanish saying, okay, We've got, we've got to look at this more. So they start thinking about who are the right kind of people that we want to bring in. So they use an impresario system and they invite early developers we might have to, um, recruit people to come in, sell them plots of land, govern that sort of thing. So you have, that's where the, the phrase first 300 comes from with Stephen F. Austin. Um, many of those who are coming in are actually folks from the South. Many of them experienced bankruptcy. were fleeing something else losing their land, wanting a fresh start, seeing an opportunity. Some of them did have money to invest and were, you know, business folks. You have a real mix of people coming in. So they start setting up colonies. And um, by this point in time, you've you've already gone through um, missions, not necessarily failing, but moving around the state, a little bit different than California. Mm. Um, hard to get a foothold by the Catholic Church in Indian territory. And, um, American Indians were, they were looking out for their own interests as well. So they would enter an alliance here if, if, if it suited their purposes and then one over here. And so there's, um, it really was one of those places where anything could happen yeah. as then, and it did. So, 
So you've got folks now coming from um, territories in the United States um, in uh 18, 19, 20, 21, really first 300 are in that 18, 21 period. And they're settling in and they're bringing their own ideals with them, right. ideas. Um, Spain wants them to uh, become Catholic. Um, Spain does not like slavery. Um, but it's going to, they want the people, so it allows a certain leeway there. Um, it is governing from Mexico City miles away, journeys of days to get any kind of even written um, information or directive. So um, you have this fierceness of if we're surviving in this place, if we're making our way in a place where we have to either bring everything with us or um, find a way to um, make a success of it in what is a beautiful land, but inhospitable in many ways, you start looking out for yourself. Yep. And and you still see the generations of people here that there's a fierceness of protecting what you have, going with what you know, love for the place. Um, and so there's this constant... Um, shift of ideas and, and conflict and um, of um, energy, you know, that can be brutal, yeah. absolutely brutal at times. And so at the, at the time, you know, you start, you know, 1821 to 1836 is not a very long time, right? Mexico is, Mexico just won its independence from Spain. It's, not in any way stable government-wise. So you have shifts there. This group wants to do this. Another group wants to do this. Everybody in Texas is being governed from hundreds and thousands of miles away. So there, there's there's a conflict because, between what the settlers want, what they've been expecting, what they've told they could bring with them, including enslaved people, and what the laws of Mexico are now becoming. And there are those who say, we will fight. This is not good. We're taking up arms right now. Mm. There are others who say, wait, 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 we need to negotiate. You know, there are certain benefits that we have in being part of Mexico. We don't want to be part of the United States. And then you have others who say our, our destiny is somewhere in between, or maybe it is with the United States, but we have, we need to get there more peacefully. Um, so you've got multiple views going on and then some hotheads in the mix. And um, it, it's when Mexico sends troops to take back literally take back a cannon that they'd given to a, a settlement for protection that where have you heard this refrain before they're coming for our guns you come and take it hmm. we're not letting up hmm. and that really becomes where things start to get to come to a head and then there are terrible bloody skirmishes and you have Santa Ana gaining control and everything goes haywire until in a, in a relatively short few months, uh, Texas wins its independence in bloody battles from Mexico, um, sets up its, you know, in, in that process leading up to that has set up itself as its own republic. Um, and it takes, they try that for 
about a decade, a little bit longer. And then um, the United States, which also was unanimous. This, the existing states weren't unanimous in taking Texas as a mm. new state. Um, so that took a while, but then you find us becoming becoming a state. Yeah. Um, and And we're still heavily populated by native american peoples and um still looking for immigrants to come in mm. and settle and just to, to back up to the point at which there uh the powder keg that was that slice of mexico at the time blew up into this warring faction uh against the 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 government in mexico city were they organized as a militia? What's the story and how how were they able strategically and just organizationally to defeat a major power at the time? It sounds like Mexico was in turmoil or not quite as stable as it would become in later years. How was a ragtag group of Texans or weren't even necessarily Texans, I don't know, at that time, but individuals able to come together and and win a, a war. Yeah, I think they would have described themselves as Texans and Tejanos, because mm. um, there was a, a significant group of people of Tejano descent that said, we want our independence, and they fought on the side of the Texas Republic. Mm. Um, it's a really interesting question and there are many scholars i'm sure who could answer this better better than me but i i think what i have gained in an understanding is um there is something about that texas to true grit mm. <laughs> in in people and the tenaciousness um there they they had arms um, they needed them for, for their settlements and they had been under attack from different American Indian tribes. Um, their, um, they had support from, they put out calls for, uh, militia to serve. Um, there are, we've had letters on display here at the museum that are pleas for aid, you know, pleas for being able to pay the military, the folks, the volunteers that were coming. There were volunteer militias that were coming from other states to assist. So you have some fantastic leaders and minds like Sam Houston, um, who are, are, um, strategizing. And then you have, um, yes, it was, a uh, an equipped army from Mexico city. Think about how far they were traveling right. from Mexico city, right? You have battles taking place in, um, not the most hospitable times of year. You have troops from Mexico that aren't being paid as well. Um, you, you have, um, huge, you know, essentially a huge expanse of, of area, even in central Texas to South Texas, if you look just at, at that space to, um, to manage and plan, you have citizens that are fleeing, you know, um, rumors spreading. Um, and so it, it really is an amazing story. In the gallery, we have actually a, a great map of both the skirmishes and some of the bloodiest battles. Mm. Um, some were a matter of hours, some were days. Mm. Uh, and um, there, there's just this kind of 
military foresight, but passion that um, it gets talked about, it gets written about in letters, it gets um, talked about in newspaper columns, and Santa Anna even wrote one. You know, I mean, mm. it's just um, the the force and the speed with which this all came to a head mm. is really pretty mesmerizing. Did the majority of the battles take place in what is now Texas or was it mostly in Mexico? And how long of a time period are we talking about before the fighting was over? Oh, you are really asking me to pull out <laughs> my uh, memory about this. We're, we're looking at um, really a matter of months. Hmm. Um, we... Now, there, there had been, Stephen F. Austin had been imprisoned in Mexico City, was trying to negotiate some calmness. Um, they found some letters that he had written home, which essentially raised a red flag of sedition, mm. you know, um, on his part. So they imprisoned him. And so then he kept a diary and he was writing letters all the time from prison. He was in prison for about a year. Mm. Um and then I think it was that experience that suggested to him that there's no way except to fight um, for our independence. Mm. We were not going to come to a resolution any other way. So if you think we're looking at, you know, some of the some of the um, calls for um, to arms by call them what you want, renegades or hotheads in different communities were happening, you know, in 34, 35, I think. Um, and, but the, the major battles in 36, um, there was, I'm, th I'm trying to remember the boundaries of Texas at the, at the point. And I, um, I'd want to go back and double check, but I think if memory is serving correctly, that the, the battles all happen in what we now call Texas. Gotcha. And were the, the, the people who were you know, the renegades or the, uh, the rabble rousers who were talking about, uh, potentially taking up arms against Mexico, were the cries for an independent nation that resembled the United States of America and its, prim mm -hmm. its principles, were they hearkening back to the American revolution as for inspiration or w was there generally a, a, a different view of what this place could become? They did. Certainly, if you look at the constitution, they did certainly borrow a great deal from, yeah. from the U S um, really it was a, a call for independence to set their own laws to have, well, the people very much were in support of slavery wanted to make sure that that was part of it. There's no getting around that one of the reasons for that, that Texas fought for independence was over the issue of slavery. It's right there in black and white mm -hmm. in the documents. Um, I, th I, I don't know if, I think if you look at some of the biographies perhaps of, of those who were the, the, strongest voices in that call for independence, you might be able to infer what their greater vision for the area was. Mm. Um, but I think at the time they were really looking at their piece of the pie. Yeah. Yeah. And so is it fair that you know, a rough analogy would be the, the, the construction of 
this the South or what became the feder the Confederacy in terms of the general laws and sort of zeitgeist uh, legally uh, of of that part of the United States. You know every. Every country, I think, that or group of people that has looked to have their own independence from some other entity is always borrowing from other places, right? right? Um, there, are, and so you see certain things repeated over time in different documents. Um, how they adhere to that might be somewhat different, mm. but Texas very much. Um, and 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 it is tied to the whole issue of slavery in many ways. And again, remember a lot of the immigrants at that point in time were from southern states, mm-hmm. Kentucky, Arkansas, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um and so they are borrowing um and and wanting to create what they had um that prov- what provided for them and what they saw economic prosperity. Um, so that, so it wouldn't have been, I don't think a surprise to anybody at the time that they would have sided with the Confederacy at the outbreak of the civil war. Yeah. And, and you've alluded to this a couple of times, but the, to clarify that the people who, who were populating Texas, both immediately before the successful war against Mexico that resulted in Texas, becoming its own entity and the people who came to Texas shortly thereafter, who are these people? Yeah. You, you mentioned some of the States that, uh, where, where they came from, but generally speaking, who were they and why did they come here? <laughs> they came, they came like anybody goes for someplace else, either fleeing <laughs> something at home, um, or a new start that they had been enticed, enticed by promises of freedoms and liberties and land land was huge. Um, an ability to have an economic start that they might not have in their the community from which they're coming from. If you look at Moses Austin, who first petitioned the um, the Spanish government before, right about the time Mexico was saying, "We hey, we want our independence." Yeah. Um, he he was going through bankruptcy back in the St. Louis area. Um, his lead mines weren't doing particularly well, and he had been involved in a bank venture in the city, and that was going under. Hmm. And so he saw it, said, great land of opportunity, gone to Texas, you know. <laughs> um, it was his son, Stephen F., who was able to realize his father's dream because Moses died um before he he got the the grant from Spain and then poor Stephen had to go back once Mexico got its independence and plead for his father's grant to as empresario to be honored right. um and then what that happened then he became the instigator mm. but um you know that is not an uncommon uh if you look at the folks who are coming here that is not an uncommon story yeah yeah, you have people who are fleeing bad marriages, mm. who um, have been accused of murder. Um, and so rather than go through trial, they're, I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you have folks that are, are generally, you know, maybe their crops failed or maybe, um, you know, it's just this vision of having a new place to start. Mm. And Texas is being marketed in some ways. If here's an opportunity, we'll give you this amount of land. And you make it, make a go of it. 
Um, and that was very enticing to people that may not have had the wealth or money in their existing place in order to do that well. And how about ethnically, the the kind of people, you know, the those individuals who were coming, was there a you know, plurality of individuals from a certain part of Europe who, who what were the sort of ethnic um, makeup of, of the people who were coming here, both right before Texas became its its own entity and, and thereafter? You have, you have uh, folks that would label themselves as Kentuckians, yeah. <laughs> but you have Irish and German and Czech and, um, and you have, uh, I was just talking the other day with um, one of our artifact lenders and his family has been here for 10 generations, right? So they're, they, they're coming from the Tejano Spanish tradition. So often when people think about the creation of America, they think of that east to west, Right. It is so much more rich and complex from the south to the north. And there is so much richness in the culture that we know as Texas that is, is from that southern has Moorish roots, has Spanish roots, has, um, uh, incredible mix of diversity. I'm, I'm always, astounded when I refresh my memory on, on history or read a new book about the diversity that has always been here in Texas. Mm. Always. One of the books in Stephen F. Austin's library was essentially a Spanish language primer. Hmm. He needed to speak Spanish in order to work with the government officials. Wasn't afraid of that. He yeah. picked it up and he learned it. Um, and so you you have that um, richness. Um, some of the most incredible ranchers that we've ever seen come from that Spanish and that vaquero tradition, mm. um, women as well as men. Mm. And um, that's why I get so excited anytime we put something new on the floor. It's like another opportunity for me to learn more about Texas history. Yeah. And, and is it fair to say or accurate to say that uh, when prior to Texas uh, separating itself from Mexico, the official language within Texas was indeed Spanish and there and after its removal from Mexico, it switch to English, even though a lot of the people who are living here were already speaking English? Or what? what is the story in terms of the, the language being spoken? That's a really good question. And I want to be thoughtful about the answer because um, I don't know that under Spanish rule, there was actually a um, recognition of an official language. Mm-hmm. Certainly all of the government documents would have, and the, and the my God, the, the, the Spanish documentation was incredible. Like they documented everything. We've got incredible, um, census records from different mission and presidios on record. And you have entire families in those groups. It's not, it's not Franciscans and then American Indians. You have soldiers, you have, who are protecting the settlement. You have trades people, you have families, you have children, you have people of different ethnic backgrounds mm-hmm. that are making up that, that group. Um, but we have on the first floor, um, that we just opened up about a year ago, uh, now where we talk about the, um, the American Indian 
people that were here at before and at the time of the Spanish moving north. Yeah. And there is a media piece that it's a panorama. We sent out a wonderful production company into the state and asked them to film all the different geographical areas so that you could get a sense of the diversity, flora and fauna and everything in the state. And then in working with um, our advisors from different tribes, we were able to receive com- uh, permission and and record um, elders speaking languages. So as you sit in front of that video of, you know, and there's there's bison, from Texas Park and Wildlife, right, roaming across the screen, and um, there's swampland, and there's the the gorgeous mountains um, of the pass in 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 the north, um, and every once in a while, besides hearing the birds and the crickets and water rushing and all of that, every once in a while there will be a voice that comes in, and there's not an English voice in that video, hmm. because at the time that we're talking about there, English would not really have been spoken here. Yeah. And so then Texas becomes its own country. And it was, as I think you already mentioned, a rather short-lived project or experiment. Think about that. Think about why that might be. Okay. So you've got your independence. You've got, um, you now have troops that were promised some sort of pension. You have you don't have government financial support anymore for what you need um you need to have a a protective force you need to have some sort of you need to establish a government you need to be able to fund it Mm -hmm. somehow um people are going to be asking you for things you're going to need surveyors you're going to need all sorts of things um and not everybody had citizen rights by the the first constitutions that was i think we as a state we have the most amended constitution in the country wow we're actually looking at doing an, an exhibition in a couple of years um just on that subject, there's some astronomical number of how many times our constitution has, has been amended. Um, ever changing Texas is ever changing, but think about what that would mean to care for you. Since you've got refugees that are coming back, right? They fled their homes because of conflict. Now they're trying to make their way back. Um, paperwork for, for who owns what does it exist? Is it in, Mexico City is it you know um you've you've got education you know there's just all of that that you need mm. to actually begin to set up a government takes money and organization and so they had to set about doing that and um there there isn't the money you print it yourself what is it worth? Do you have the goal to back it up? I mean, just think about what it takes to set up that government. Sure. And from the very onset, there were folks saying, okay, we got our independence. Now we got to go. We Now we have to join the United States. Um, that was their, some of their thinking all along. And then there are others like, no, 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 Republic. We don't need anybody else. You know, that, that um, ethic and idealism of we got this. Um, 
so it's it's a really fascinating part of history just setting up but but it, it's confusing as heck as you try to see okay at this point they said this was okay but then they came back they didn't like that so they amended it and they said this and but then that wasn't real good so you know so already at that point after you know in I think some of the earliest letters um from other states and petitions from other states uh, about Texas there were there were states that were worried about Texas petitioning to join the United States are like, no, we don't want them. Um, and so we've had letters on, on view that are, that are really fun to root that are both pro and con of what does it mean to have Texas from other States, not from Texans, but mm-hmm. from other States saying, what does it mean for Texas to join the U S hmm. and eventually when Texas decided not to be its own nation anymore and to become a part of, of a, of another country, uh, was it a courtship from Texas to, I believe the United States, it was prior to the Confederacy. Am I right mm-hmm. about that? And, yes. and if so, what's the story in terms of how that courtship worked or how that merger actually happened? It was, there was certainly, you know, you start throwing in manifest destiny and, and the desire of the United States to expand across the continent. Mm. For some, there was that. Texans had a reputation already by that time. And so <laughs> what was that reputation? There, <laughs> there, there were, um, Hey, they had just fought a revolution all on their own, you know, for all intents and purposes. Um, and they were, um, they didn't take off from anybody. Right. So how are they, if they, if they wouldn't, how are they going to fit under the, the rules of the United States? Right. Plus they're, they're, they're very open that if they join the United States, um, if their petition was granted that they would only probably only do it under the condition that they, um, be able to maintain slavery. Hmm. And there were Northern states that did not want to shift that balance of, of power. Um, so there was, there was a lot of negotiation. I'm sure there was a lot of backseat back behind the scenes, wheeling and dealing, um, kind of thing. And, and, but they, they had to petition. There was a lot of, um, taking, uh, opinions from other states for, you know, debate about it, um, until, you know, we became the 28th in uh, 48. Hmm. And was that a, in terms of procedurally how that happens, where a state at that time became a part of the United States was what, what had to be agreed to, or what, what was the, is it state houses that vote as to whether they're open to another state joining or how exactly did Texas actually be formally admitted into the U S this is like quizzing me on, on <laughs> U.S. government 101, but they had to petition. It was debated. Um, there, the petition has to get through so many stages, as I understand it. And um, there were there were other territories that were petitioning at the same time. Mm. So they looked at that balance of power to see, okay, if we bring Texas in and they have this, because with your statehood comes represent comes representation in Congress. And so that can shift balance of power. Mm. And so bringing in other territories at the same time helps keep that theoretically helps keep that balance of power. Right. Yeah. But it just, it just pushed off that conversation about 
slavery and um, slavery in connection with states' rights. Yeah. Just a, a little bit further down the road, it still came back in the Civil War, of course, hmm. but it just that those debates were happening early in the 19th century and they continued to, you know, just escalate mm -hmm. um, until you, you reach the civil war period. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I grew up in Pennsylvania and, and when I always thought about the, the North versus South in, in the civil war, it was Texas did not come to the forefront of, of one's mind necessarily as playing a key role in, in that conflict. Mm -hmm. Um, what was Texas's actual role in the conflict? It, it became a part of the Confederacy, but given the number of people who were actually in Texas at the time, a number I'm, I'm not familiar with and the people, the number of people who may have, or may not have fought in the, in the, in the, in the civil war, did Texas play a big role in the Civil War, and if so, what what was what what's that story? It it really through people. Yeah, I mean it sent it sent a lot of troops. Um, we we tell the story through the diaries of people um, in our second floor gallery, and with first person quotes, which are always so telling in terms of how they were viewing being the war supplies. Um, where they could, Texas wasn't wealthy. So, I mean, you had ranchers who certainly were, but it was really, I think, more people, resources, leadership, um, uh, arms, where, where they could, uh, beef, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. food, that sort of thing. Um, and Texas, um, like many of the Southern states, was not happy about losing, did not lose gracefully and, um, did not, uh, you know, it took the federal government occupying Texas, sending troops in, in order to make sure that the emancipation proclamation was honored. Mm -hmm. Um, and we had, you know, one of the great things about Texas and the government that followed the Civil War is we had in this in the eighteen seventies black legislators who were learned men who were really um doing what they could within the legislature to make change within their in their districts and mm. their communities. And those were Texas men. Those were Texas men. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to bring this more to modern times and, and where, where Texas is today. It's, it's a growing state. It's mm -hmm. still a geographically enormous state. Um, it's becoming, at least in the city, such a multicultural place as well. You mentioned that, uh, before, I think before we started uh, recording that you're from Wisconsin, um, or that may have been on the recording, but when, when you think of Texas now, what is the story that comes to your mind? We, we've talked so much about the history of how this place came to be, but how do you think about Texas in modern American life? So I'm, as you said, a transplant yeah. like yourself. Um, it'll be seven years in January that I've been here. And I came to work at the Bullock Museum. My background, I have 30 years experience in, in history museums and international education. So, um, I, I view Texas, I think, as both still 
a newbie and, and because of where I am and what I study, having, having not comprehensive knowledge, but a growing knowledge. So I was growing of, of Texas and how we got here. And so as I see Texas today, I can see a lot of similarities with our past. Um, I, I feel on a personal level that Texas truly is one of the most hospitable places to an individual that I've ever lived in. And, um, I've loved every place that I've lived in. I was in Philadelphia for a while, Chicago, St. Louis, um, after, after Wisconsin. And I think the, um, you see that kind of hospitality, hospitality come out, not just in welcoming, uh, people in, but also in, um, times of disaster. So if you look at the folks that came out to rescue, feed, clothe, provide water after Hurricane Harvey or like immediately after. They're as diverse as you can get. It didn't matter, you know, where they came from or who they were. They, somebody was in need and they were going to be there to help them. And, and that to me is a very Texan thing. Hmm. Um, and, and I'm so appreciative of that. There is also that feistiness, right? That, um, uh, we've done it this way. My family has been here for generations. This matters to me. There's a grounding in the land that I think the first settlers, whether they were American Indians or whether they were settlers from Kentucky, um, feel there is something about that. Um, Barbara Jordan had a wonderful quote um, about the uh, the feeling of Texas being so large that you feel anything is impossible. And I'm paraphrasing. Hmm. She said it much more beautifully. But I think that that is true. And I see that in people who have been here after a period of time where they're um, they're feeling a lot of the time grounded. Now they're still very passionate about their causes. There can still be partisanship over issues. Um, but there always has been that here hmm. as well. So I'm not sure if that comes from just being human yeah. <laughs> or if it comes from something else that is inherently Texan. I don't know yet. Yeah. I have to figure that out. You mentioned that you think a lot of old Texas is still here, that there are, there are elements of, of, it, of its history that you can see in modern Texas. You mentioned the hospitality and the feistiness. Are there other components of, of that history that you think, you know, for an outsider, if they came and they actually settled in here and, and lived here for a while that would be unique or yeah, Texas definitely had a reputation in all the various places I lived in before I got here and it was generally, you know, some of it was mythical in the sense that it was related to its, its guns and its cowboy hats and its sort of Western, uh, Hollywood mm -hmm. persona. Um, what, what do you think is real about that in terms of the, what, what kind of history has been maintained to, to modern, modern Texas? I would start out by saying that I think Texas shifts depending on where you are in yeah. the state, right? So you have urban, you have suburban, and then you have 
um, rural ranch, you know, that is in people's blood. And, you know, I've been pretty much, uh, a, a city woman, you know, since I was a kid and the community, my small community was 30,000, right? My, my, um, ancestors were farmers. So mm-hmm. they were in communities of a couple hundred, right? And I would spend time with them. So kind of cross over these, these two worlds. So there's a lot about Texas and the rural areas and in the ranches that is not unfamiliar to me. What I see in those areas is an appreciation for and a respect for the intersection between people and nature hmm. and human, human impact on the land, right? When you start moving away, and and start going into communities that are more corporate minded i think you start losing that a little bit yeah. and other things come out and and so you have a um strong focus on eco- economic development um but not at any cost you know but the, i think the um the approach that texans are are trying to find is is um somewhere in between what is the balance between that so you certainly have those cowboys they walk like a cowboy they talk like a cowboy there's actually a great documentary that was just released about a month ago called cowboys Hmm. and it's beautifully um, filmed and it has individual stories from folks and we've been collecting them in our Texas story project as well Mm. online and in, in, um, um, exhibitions that we do. And so you, you see it there and, you know, you, you know, right away that that person, true heart Texan born and raised here native, you see the bumper stickers, Mm. right. Um, and, and so there is that it's not myth. It's actually real. Yeah. Um, but Austin is different than that as well. So you have a mix of people and you see it shift during legislative session where people are coming in to the Capitol complex and they're looking to make their case. And you have legislators that are representing from all across the state and they are very Texan too. And, and People, I think after a while, if they, if they fall in love in the, with the place and they become invested in it, they begin to see themselves as Texans mm. and, um, there will be respect for that. I don't know that anybody will say, oh no, you're not a Texan yet, but there will be a, a basic understanding that those Texans who have been here for seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 generations, um, they've they really are Texan. They really are Tejano. They know, you know, it, you can't get it out of their blood after that point. Yeah. Last question I want to ask you, and I, I know you've done a lot of these interviews about this state and, uh, have probably answered hundreds of questions, if not more. Um, what is a question you've always wanted to be asked about the state of Texas that you've never gotten a, a chance to answer? Or if there isn't something that springs to mind, what is uh, a mischaracterization or a misunderstanding about this place that you like to correct the record about? That is a really thoughtful, thought-provoking question. Um, I don't know that there's been a question 
yet that I wish I would have been asked. I don't think I've been here long enough for that yeah. one. Um, in terms of what I think I would like people to understand is that there is, and you might be able to make this argument in any place, right? But I think there is more that connects us um, and more that we can appreciate about our history and its relevance to the present and, and to the future mm-hmm. than um, we have yet taken advantage of. And, and I hope in what we do here at the Bullock Museum that we can get people to think about that a little bit more. We don't have our history on view just because it's a nice thing to have and it, and it's important, but it, it's because it is those things. Um, but it's to get you to think about more. Why does this, why does this matter? Why does the preservation of what I'm seeing here, how do I connect with it? Why does it matter for who I am and where I want Texas to be? Mm-hmm. And history can be such a, a valuable resource in kind of charting a path. And the best connections that we see happen with our visitors in movies and programs in in exhibitions is when they go, oh, yeah, my dad did that and he came from Canada. You know, it's like that, that human element. History is very human. It is very personal. And we want people to be able to find themselves, even if the history is new to them, mm-hmm. when they walk into this place and when they interact with the experiences in the galleries. Yeah. Um, and and when those moments happen, it's it's wonderful because they're taking that piece with them. They're owning it. Yeah. And it is very important from my perspective for us to own our history. The ugly, the brutal, the bloody, the wonderful, the amazing, the inspiring. That is what our history is. And that's why I love doing what I do. Well, thank you for sharing so much of that. It was really great to have you on. This was fascinating. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the ATX Podcast. For more information, follow the show on social media. Its handle is the ATX Podcast. And on the show's website, theatxpodcast.com. Mm-hmm.